welcome to the podcast. I'm Pastor Tim Spivey of New Vintage Church, and I want to say to everybody that's a part of New Vintage, happy ninth birthday. Two days from now on Friday will be our church's ninth birthday. And if you're not familiar with starting new churches and how many churches don't make it nine years, um, you really are, uh, it is uh, more the exception to make it nine years as a new church. And so to not only to make it, but to uh, be on the precipice of our best years yet, I am very, very grateful and honored to be able to pastor the church that I am and want to just wish us all a happy ninth birthday at New Vintage Church. I just got back from hosting a uh, feeding of 250 healthcare workers at Palomar Medical Center on behalf of our church in partnership with a couple of other groups. And I just want to tell you uh, how wonderful it is to see the smiles. I guess you could say the smiles. They're, they're under a mask, but you can tell they're smiling because their eyes are going up uh, and they show happy eyes at us. Uh, and everybody's kind of waving at each other and saying, God bless you and stuff. And we provided them uh, Filippi's Pizza Grotto food and filled their stomachs to the brim, I'm sure. So um, for those of you who give on a regular basis to New Vintage Church, please know that uh, that that your offerings are going to do some great things here in our community. I want to begin uh, today talking about Bible study. I obviously love the Bible, have since I was a very young boy, and have done some training in, in biblical studies and teach biblical studies uh, at the university level. And one of the things I hope you might find beneficial is for me to give you some concrete Bible study tools. So last week we talked about basically how to set up a daily devotional kind of pattern and a habit. Uh, today I want to talk a little bit about interpretation and how to do that well so that we don't just read it um, and pull things out of it that aren't really there, but we can read it responsibly and really learn to hear the voice of God when we read the Bible. So I want to begin with a very simple principle, and I'm only going to do one this week. I'm going to try to drop one in every week when we do the podcast. But this week, I want to talk about interpreting the Bible in what you would call concentric circles. Now, that sounds a little bit scarier than it is. All it basically means is doing it from uh, the inside out rather than, or from the outside in rather than the inside out. Okay, so let me give you an example. One of the favorite texts that Americans love is Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you, some of you may even have tattoos that say Jeremiah 29, 11 on your body. Um, I want to say that it's a wonderful verse. Uh, it's obviously scripture, so it is divinely inspired. But at the same time, Jeremiah 29, 11, Philippians 4, 13, some of the most oft quoted verses in the Bible do not necessarily mean in their context, what we hold them to mean in our hearts. So as an example, in Jeremiah uh, 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Uh, if you are interpreting that verse and you just read it in isolation, you go, oh, that's great. God has a plan for my life, and uh, my plan is not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Okay, And there's certainly plenty of things in Scripture that would lead you to believe that God definitely has some sort of plan for your life and that he is on your side. Uh, passages, for instance, like, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Scriptures that are similar say something very similar. Jeremiah 29.11 is not really saying that. Jeremiah 29.11, what you want to do is take that text, read that verse, Okay, but you want to make sure that you're reading what is around that verse as well. So if you read the verse right before in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, 
you will read something that is very important to interpreting that passage. That is, this is a future promise for others, not the people that Jeremiah is actually addressing in the text. So what Jeremiah is really saying, uh, it is, and, and another thing to point out is that it's clearly conditional. So the more you pan out and you start reading Jeremiah, say, start at Jeremiah 29, chapter 1, right? So to use the concentric circle model, you can take Jeremiah 29, 11, draw a circle around it. Okay, then you pan out to maybe Jeremiah 29, that chapter. And, okay, what does 29:11 mean in the context of Jeremiah 29? Then you might pan out and say, okay, in this section of the book of Jeremiah, how does it fit? And then pan out to the book of Jeremiah as a whole. And then the prophets or within the historical setting in which the book of Jeremiah took place, what does it mean in light of all of those factors? Uh, for instance, they're in exile, and this is a promise basically saying, you guys have blown it, but if you turn back toward me and your children do, then I will, 70 years from now, if you repent, I will prosper you, which is very different than kind of the immediate and ongoing every moment of every day individualized promise that is given to uh, that the way we interpret it in 21st century America. Okay, uh, Philippians 4.13, for instance, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, is not really designed to be, uh, to, to tell you, hey, you can kick the 60-yard field goal if you want to, uh, because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, or you can pick up a, a, tr a locomotive and ho hold it over your head, because um, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. In the context, again, if you take 4.13, draw a circle around it, and then pan out a little bit, Paul's just come off talking about contentment. And so in the context, as you begin to pan out, you can see what he's really talking about there is the ability to remain content even when your circumstances are not what you would want them to be. So it has a lot more to do with perseverance. It has a lot more to do with um, how to and remember Paul's writing from prison. There's a whole bunch of things that go into that that help you interpret that passage responsibly so that we don't misappropriate the Bible and get it to say things that it never said. So there's an old axiom that I like when I interpret the Bible. Um, I don't know that it's 100% on target, but it's pretty close. And it goes like this. It cannot mean for you what it never meant for them. So what we want to begin with is what did it mean to the original people it was written to and then start panning out from there. So it, it clearly... There are all sorts of texts inside Scripture that talk about God's ability to help us do great things or for us to overcome obstacles and things like that. But we want to make sure that if we're using Philippians 4.13, that we're talking about Philippians 4.13 in a way that does justice to Philippians 4.13 so that we're not putting words in Paul's mouth. So within the context, remember, it's rejoicing in the Lord always, and he talks about contentment and and all of those kinds of things. And he's now discovered the secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Put in the context of that chapter means something not, not radically different, but different. And so it makes a difference as to whether or not you're using that text uh, to help you do some, some, face some big challenge in your life versus I'm applying that, for instance, to the COVID-19 crisis where I am now, which might be a much more applicable I'm trapped in my house. Uh, I'm struggling with depression. My kids are driving me crazy. My marriage is doing this. But I know that in Christ, uh, I am content. And I know that we're going to get through this because I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength. That's a little bit better. Uh, that's a different appropriation of that verse than 
hey, I'm going to get straight A's because God said I can do it because Jesus is on my side. So those, that way of looking at the text is very, very important when you approach the Bible because if you're really seeking to discern the voice of God, then you want to know what he actually said, right? We don't want to put words into the mouth of God. So with that in mind, I'm going to turn to a different text, which is one of the commandments. And let me ask you this. This comes from a blog post of mine from 2011. It was called How to Bear False Witness, a User's Manual. So um, I'm just going to read it to you. And I want you to hear it in the context of the world we're in today, in which it seems very hard for us to um, get the truth out of people about others. It can be very hard sometimes to know if what the president says about the media, for instance, or what the media says about the president is truthful to the point that now whenever I read something, I feel like I have to go research it myself because I don't trust who it's coming from. So if you're in that uh, camp, I think one of the things that's easier for Christians to do because we're human, that our flesh starts speaking so loudly that at times we will... Um, get caught up in some of the tornadoes of emotion that go on in the world around us and get to the point that we don't particularly care if what we're saying about somebody, uh, whether we're representing them fairly, whether we're introducing all of the facts or if we're selecting just pieces of them in an effort to make them look bad or, or slant things in a particular way, whether we're taking somebody's words out of context, whether we're just simply fabricating what took place that the ends justify the means. But that's not really the way the scriptures see them. So I want to, uh, this was written really more in the church context, but I think it applies beyond the church into everyday life. So uh, let me go ahead and pass this on to you, and I hope it helps you in some way. How to Bear False Witness, a user's manual. Which of the commandments is easiest to break? An argument can certainly be made for Sabbath observation. However, I think the most frequently broken commandment may be the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The other morning, I heard a commercial for a business called Reputation Defender. The idea is that people say a lot of bad stuff about businesses online these days, and you need to be prepared to counter what people say online. I will admit, at first, I was kind of glad they existed. Why? Because we live in a lying culture. Lying about others is so typical that a person who is honest more than half the time is often considered an honest person. Sadly, one of the places that people get accused by falsehood the most is in church. I've seen church leaders accused of some of the most absurd things by people who will stop at nothing to hurt them. I've heard things about churches that have nearly, if not completely, zero basis in reality and often the accusers know it. What's worse, when this happens, churches don't hold people accountable for lying against a brother or sister in Christ, and thus they continue to do damage year after year, enabled and empowered by their churches. Some of you may be wondering what I mean. You have a hunch you know, but in case you don't, or you're looking to perfect your own tactics of dishonesty, I've prepared a brief manual on how to bear false witness against your neighbor without being held accountable. Here we go. Number one. Attend a church where people don't hold one another accountable for dishonesty. Now, a translation into everyday society, this is, we're off script, we'll end quote there, uh, would be simply hang out in quarters where telling the truth means nothing. So if the people that you run with, the articles you read, the periodicals you read, the newscasts you watch have zero value for the truth, they're just squawk boxes, uh, then you are well on your way to becoming a dishonest person yourself. Number two, identify a person that you want to damage or a change you want to obstruct, if you can do both at the same time, this is preferable. 
Number three, find a tiny kernel of truth and surround it with a dung clod of untruth. If a kernel of truth is unavailable, just use the dung clod. If challenged, number four, always claim your motives are pure. Number five, if someone questions your motives, focus the discussion on their questioning of your motives. Just make sure it doesn't come back to your dishonesty. Number six, if someone points out that bearing false witness is against the commandments, make Marcion proud by reminding them the commandments are only for legalists like them. You live, after all, under grace, and if possible, misdirect others by focusing all future conversation on legalism rather than your dishonesty. Number seven, if by chance your dung clod is exposed, just remind people there is always a kernel of truth in every dung clod. This will create more suspicion, the open-ended kind that keeps them from holding you accountable and keeps just a tiny hint of doubt in their mind about the person you've accused. That should do it. As for how to handle it if you are the accused, well, leave the dung clods on the ground. Just speak truthfully. No kernels, just truth clods. Hold people accountable by confronting in a godly way. If you don't, people will get hurt and your church will grow a bit sicker. Lastly, remember that God sees all and will hold them accountable for every careless word they utter. That's the truth. And then here's the ending question. Is this a problem among Christians? Why? How do we deal with it? I think it's a growing problem nearly everywhere these days, and it's up to us as the followers of Jesus to make sure that we are known for telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We can persuade, we can make arguments, we can make cases, we can try to passionately persuade and debate, but we cannot call ourselves the people of God and continue to bear false witness against others, whether they are our least favorite politicians, whether they are our least favorite media outlets, or whatever the case may be. We are people of the truth if we are Christians. That's just the way that it is, and we should all be glad. Lastly, uh, one of the overseen elements of the current crisis that we're in is the impact of religion economically on the economy. Now, that's not something that churches talk about almost ever. They are often on the receiving end of critique because the assumption of the secular world that doesn't spend a lot of time looking at the economics of the church world often assume that basically churches pretty much only receive and give virtually zero to the economy. But uh, there was a study done by some people at Georgetown and then also kind of cross-referenced over to the University of Pennsylvania that did a study of what they thought religion as a whole in the United States contributes to the economy. I'm going to read you an excerpt from that. There are two articles I'm referencing here, one from the Washington Post, one from the Christian Post. And um, in both, there's really no fundamental difference in the articles at all. One probably has a slightly rosier view, and um, but, but the information, the core info inside the articles is identical. So I want to read this to you, and it's something to think about because churches contribute not just a ton in terms of their cultural value within a city. They also contribute enormously to the economy of that city, regardless of... Um, what people think about how they ought to be taxed or whatever, whatever tax burden they would have put on them is absolutely dwarfed by the contribution that they make economically to the city. There's really no way around that. So the study found this. Here's the headline, and I wanted to let it sink in for you. Okay, the headline on the Christian Post is this. Religion contributes $1.2 trillion to U.S. economy, more than top 10 tech companies combined, study finds. 
Here's the Washington Post headline. Religion contributes more to the U.S. economy than Facebook, Google, and Apple combined. Okay, so the next time that somebody comes up to you and tells you that churches basically are only on the take and they're a leech on society, remember that. And that's just the economic side. This also, by the way, does not include things like faith-based businesses that you would think of, the Chick-fil-A's, the Hobby Lobbies of the world, and the impact that they've made. This is strictly faith-based charitable giving, uh, Christian educational institutions, uh, things of that nature, and it does not include real estate and things of that nature. So uh, I'm going to read some excerpts here from the Christian Post. And again, I'm saying this not so much because um, uh, I, I'm trying to blow the church's horn per se, but more because I think it's important that Christians have the ability to defend themselves against some of the lunacy being published these days about what religion does or isn't doing to the economy. Um, one of the things I'll just say before I get going, um, I know that right now there is a lot of coverage of uh, the one or the handful of churches in the United States that have not shut their doors yet or are doing drive-in services. And, and I guess it's okay to pay some attention to them or whatever. It's just a shame that the good work of the 99.9% of the 340 plus thousand churches in the United States, uh, the good that's being done by those churches and the fact that almost all of them shut their doors and were among the earliest large assemblies to do so uh, is being completely neglected in the media. So I think you ought to feel good about the job overall that the church has done. And uh, the the struggle over narrative is not nearly over. I think it's going to just grow in the days ahead. But uh, here we go. Religion contributes $1.2 trillion to U.S. economy, more than top 10 tech companies combined. Study finds. Okay. Uh, religious groups contribute $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy, more than the top 10 tech companies combined. Consider the contributions of Apple, Google, and Amazon on the American economy. They pale in comparison to faith organizations. Plus, unlike the tech giants, faith groups often devote the bulk of their resources to helping the poor and suffering. This is a quote. From the first time, we've been able to quantify what religious institutions, faith-based charities, and even businesses inspired by faith contribute to our country, said Georgetown University's Michael Grimm, co-author of the study at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., Published in an interdisciplinary journal of research on religion, quote, the socioeconomic contribution of religion to American society and empirical analysis provides the first ever documented quantitative analysis of the economic impact of 344,000 plus congregations, as well as the impact of religious institutions and businesses. Grimm further noted that in an age where there's a growing belief that religion is not a positive is not a positive for American society, adding up the numbers is a tangible reminder of the impact of religion. When run, one runs those numbers, the total economic contribution of religion in America sits around 1.2 trillion, about the same size as the world's 15th largest economy. Now, I'll note that there were a couple of other studies done. They studied on the low side. If you just took the um, the impact of the donations of religion in America. And then there was another that, that talked about all of the, um, the incomes of faith-based people employed in faith-based different organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, on the low side, the lowest possible estimate out there is about $345 billion, And that's just when you're talking more on the offerings only side of things. Uh, on the high side, it was about $4.8 
So it all depends on how you slice and dice the numbers. Uh, there are many things in here that are not covered. Again, real estate is not covered um, by that study to get to that $1.2 trillion uh, number. Um, here's something I want to point out toward the end. Uh, it says, in light of the rising hus cultural hostility toward religion, the Christian Post asked the panelists if they could give a rough estimate what the economic impact would be if, for example, religious institutions were to be stripped of their tax-exempt status. Galston remarked that would be hard to determine given religious people often donate out of different motives than purely economic ones. Uh, one of the other guys, I can't even know how to say his name, it's spelled like Canaan with no A at the beginning, so it's Canaan is tired of the apologetic tone too many religious leaders employ. He says, in my many interactions with clergy and religious leaders, Kanan added, they always seem to lack confidence and they always sound apologetic. Instead, in light of the numbers borne out in Grimm's research, he said, I wish I could have gone to every congregation and tell them, be proud, you're part of something very big and very important. And to that, I will say, amen. And we should be very happy to be part of it. We contribute to the society that we're in, the towns that we serve um, in the name of Jesus. And we do so as a part of something very, very big. So when you contribute to the local church, as God has asked you to do, keep in mind, you're not just sustaining the local church. You're actually contributing in some very positive ways to your own community by default. So that's not why we do it, but it, in its entirety, at least, it's not why we do it. But we can rejoice in the fact that it is happening. So I hope that some of this has encouraged you. When you read the scriptures, remember to pan out, to read those verses in their context, to pay attention to the chapter they're in, to the book they're in, to the, you know, the testament they're in, or the section or the genre of literature that they're in, so that we can interpret those texts responsibly. Uh, and then also... Also remember uh, to be honest in how you communicate about your opponents. Uh, I have often tried to think of it in this way. If the smartest, like say I was going to be talking or representing uh, Islam or Judaism, uh, what would the smartest, most eloquent, best advocate for that particular faith, how would they put it? And then I try to communicate it that way because it will keep me more honest than if I try to be pejorative or anything about anything, not that I consider them enemies per se, just that when you're trying to represent others, sometimes trying to put that hat on and say, okay, how would the best advocate for what for their position, how would they put that? And what are the best arguments from the other side? Because again, if truth is the pursuit, which it should be, then um, you know we're more likely to get to it than if we simply advocate for our emotions on every level and, and refuse to seek the truth. And then lastly, Remember that we are part of something very, very big that makes a very, very positive impact on the economy. So um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless you. <music>